Uh, look, rapid fire for you to start with. A couple of quick questions, just so the audience can go, uh, what's this guy all about? So quick questions, here we go. Breakfast or dinner? I'm a breakfast guy. Breakfast guy. Fruit or veg? Uh, veg only. Veg only? Well, I'm not vegetarian, but I can't do fruit. Fruit will kill me. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. Beer or wine? Um, zero. I am a non-drinker and have been for two years now in my 50th year. But if I had to choose, it would be wine and whiskey. Mm, yes, yes. Would we find you reading a real book, possibly your own, or reading a Kindle? <laughs> I'm not going to read my own book um, because my wife says they're a cure for insomnia, which is not true and you should all read them. But by the way, all of my books are digitally free. Um, I made the decision that I'm in the business of experiences, not ideas. Now, you will find me reading Kindles. It depends what I'm reading, if it's a consumption piece or a business piece. I'd rather have it digitized so I can take notes, flick it to Evernote, put it up, you know, curate it out to social media instantly. But if it's one of my deep reflective books, I actually want to hold it in my hand um, and for some reason. Makes sense. All right, we will talk about the uh, book some more, but uh, just to round out the quick fire, which is turning into like semi quick fire with you, Matt. Yeah, um, you're getting me to shut up, that's your problem. Cat, cats or dogs? Uh, look, I'm a dog person my whole life. Say no more. Just, just this year, though, I got an appreciation for cats. And I actually can see a cat in my future, which is not something I would have said uh, up till now. I would have said, you know, I would have had a joke, you know, dogs have masters, cats have servants. I would have had all these kind of lines. And, um, but what I'm starting to appreciate is the interdependence of a cat, just that they are a cool cat and they're not needy. That could be fabulous because I'm about to empty nest in the next couple of years. So I'm like, anything that has no demands on me, that could be wicked. Like I could live into that future for sure. Okay. Uh, Matt, your philosophy revolves around the word next. Tell us what that means to you and then in what's taking mind share for you around what's next in Matt's world. Uh, I think, well, Matt's world and the world are, are not always the same thing, even though they have a Venn diagram of some sort. But I think I, I'm, I'm a big fan of evolution. Now, whether you call that personal development of the 80s and 90s, whether you call it the, uh, the growth mindset that Carol Dweck talks about, uh, whether it's the concept of continuous improvement that's a big part of the, the breakthrough network and, and the proposition of coming together and sharing ideas. I'm just big on the expansiveness of tomorrow can be as good if not better than today. And I love the idea, may your best todays be your worst tomorrows. I love that turn of phrase. Mm -hmm. And so for me... I just, I just don't think you shrink your way into the future. I think what you do is you stretch your way into the future and you want to push the edges of what's possible physically, mentally, you know, spiritually, energetically, and absolutely commercially because I'm a big fan for the deregulated quality of a good commercial offering to determine whether something has value. It's not the only way to determine value. You know, there are things that don't make money that are extraordinarily valuable for society. Make, make no mistake, big fan of that. But one of the easiest things to test, because you can sit alone by yourself and go, I've got a great idea. But if no one pays you for it, I'm not sure it's that great. Now, that's not to say that there aren't great ideas that don't have a commercial traction to it. But I do find it's one of the easiest experiments for value is to go, will you pay me for this? And if someone goes, no, then you probably, <laughs> you might be off, you know. Uh, you know so. so I think what's next is that we get closer to the customer. I think what's next is that... Um, there's no doubt the technological disruption's off the charts, right? So 
you know, you've seen that Facebook uh, post that goes around like an infographic where they go fastest growing transport business, Uber owns no cars, fastest growing accommodation business, Airbnb owns no property, blah, 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 right? Alibaba, biggest uh, retailer, has no inventory, da, 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 da. And off it goes. But essentially, if you looked at the Financial Times top 10 in 2007 and 2017, you'll see that Microsoft and Google uh, or Alphabet and all these others are in the in the top five now when Microsoft was the only one in the top five and the top 10 a decade ago, which shows that we're moving from bits you know, and, and products into services and solutions. So I think that what's next is not the technological disruption and the rise of robots. It's the rise of humanity. And I reckon what's next is that your, your humanity as a leader or a business owner is your commercial advantage, your competitive advantage. And the customer experience is your smartest bet on the future. And that's my prediction for what's next in the the communities that we care about, you know, the the breakthrough community, uh, yours and mine shared interests, you know, across all those things. I think we increase the humanity uh, and and that we need to get quite um, engineering about that. And I think that's the future that we all need to be focusing on. Yeah. So aligned with your thinking there, there, Matt, around the humanistic element of what's happening going forward. And I think we've mm-hmm. seen through uh, changes in time, industrial yeah. revolution, et cetera, when we, oh my God, machines are going to take over. Then it became robots and then it became AI. And it's always been the human element that has uh, evolved um, and surpassed the technological piece uh, to keep going. So. Yeah, all the, all the pundits are, you know, we, we know that AI is a thing. Um, it is a thing, it's clearly, and robotics is part of that. But the automation anxiety that people have got towards that future, I think is fair if you're playing an average game. I, I think if you are playing the middle of the road status quo, I think, yeah, you're probably going to be out of business sometime very, very soon. But if you have this... Uh, continual goal and even just like the the s curve that sits behind the breakthroughs proposition is about this idea that you've got to continually reinvent and that what marshall goldsmith the leadership expert says you know what got you here won't get you there right and that's that that classic idea of how do we become something more while still being all that we currently are Mm -hmm. and 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 it's closing that gap with, which becomes a cognitive dissonance. And if you're Brian Tracy says you need to be blessed with dissatisfaction. And that means you've got to somehow be okay with we're not there yet, but I'm so okay with where we are. And, and when you can, when you can do that, it's almost like a Zen Cohen, isn't it? You're almost holding on tight with an open palm. And, and when you can get those two ideas coexisting, I think you're in that sweet spot of, um, of reinvention and growth. So in your advice, how does someone try to get themselves into that zone? For me, I think there, there's almost like this vertical line that runs through our lives. And um, depends how woo-woo you want me to go, Ryan, but let's, let's say we're talking to, to people that don't know me yet and, and haven't got any relationship with me. Is I'd go, what you need to do is you need to rise up. So you need to be the best version of you you can be. You need to be the best leader possible. You need to be reading a book a week. You can't, so you need to read them on Blinkist, five swipes of the finger while having a coffee, get across the book summaries, develop a whole new way to reinvent. You need to grow physically, mentally. Uh, you need to be continually upskilling. This is not something you did when you were 18 at school or 20 at university. The imperative to learn is now everywhere. 
So rise up, rise up, be the best version of yourself, clear up your baggage, you know, enroll in a landmark course. If you've, if you've got some behavioral sharp edges that mean your emotional intelligence is lacking, fix it. Um, if you're still running your mum and dad's paradigm of how to behave as a human, if you won the parenting lottery, keep it up. But if you didn't, um, it's time to rise up. So I really believe that this vertical line has a, has a, you know, a, a, a peak where you're basically saying, as I, I'm trying to be the uppest version of myself, I can. Not up myself, but I'm trying to be the best version. And then what you've got to do is you've got to go down or what I call fall back. So I think the two, the two things that you need to do to be okay no matter where you are is you've got to rise up and then you've got to fall back. And falling back is to, is to not pursue happiness, to not fill the hole inside you with your ambition and drive, but to actually find a peaceful place inside you and create from there. Because we've all worked for that person where your best is not good enough for them. Mm -hmm. And what we're finding, and this is not a millennials issue, this is not a Gen Z issue, this is actually a human issue, is I, I, I predict, and it's not my prediction, but I, I believe it to be true, but I reckon the middle class is gone in 20 years. And I reckon that something like... Um, I'm just trying to remember who's that democratic uh, candidate, Andrew. Uh, he's the maths geek. Anyway, he's arguing for this idea called unconditional basic income, which is not a new idea. It's, it's free money for all three us grand a month for everybody, no matter what you do. And then you can earn more money when you work because what it does, it creates a consumer society, right? Because they're saying the middle class will go now that may or may not be true. But what I think is those of us who work are not going to be working because we have to. I actually think the grind of society, regardless of the economic engine that happens around it, it's actually going, it's actually going to be easier to live with less um, uh, in, in the next two decades, you know, by the time autonomous vehicles are, are on the planet. Now, if you're 60, who cares? But if you're 30 and you're listening to this, this is really important because what it means, I think, is that you need to understand that who you're being to the people who are around you is more important than what you, you have for them because people aren't going to be working for money. Boston Consulting did this thing recently where they identified that high potentials, that's the talented people who work in large organisations, don't work for the same priorities as the average person. So if you said to the average person, why do you work? They go money and status, mm -hmm. right? So give me, a, give me a promotion and give me more money. Now, make no mistake, the top five want money and status, but they're, they're fifth and fourth. They're not the drivers, right? You know, in the war for talent, they're saying that what they need is um, autonomous learning. So they need to be connected to an environment where they grow, which is not prescriptive regulation courses. You know what I mean? Like the course the accountant or the financial advisor has to do for points. The talented people go, look, we'll tick that box, but we need something else. The second thing that they need is they need uh, individual recognition. And this is to do with um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and the fact that the physical needs are being taken care of. So belonging becomes critically important, which is why culture drives what you do. But then what's happening is the self-actualized goal, which sits at the top of Maslow's pyramid, has become even more important. So ironically, it's about recognizing my individual achievement. And that's as simple as employee of the month, right? Like, you know, I just want to point out how awesome you are. And, you know, Ray Kroc figured that out with Maccas, right? Yeah. And then the number one thing which blows my mind is they essentially, are, they want their LinkedIn profile to be awesome. They're not going to work for you forever. But what they want to do is they want to invent the iPhone on, on their watch with you. 
they wanted to be able to say, that's a project of significance that I participated in company X. And then they'll take that to another company, they'll leave you. But mm-hmm. then what they'll do is they'll come back four years later with the knowledge they've generated working in London for a competitor and here and there. And they come back to your business because they have found the inspiration they got from you as a leader, they couldn't get anywhere else. And so it turns out they don't go anywhere else. And if you, if you are cool and you keep that door open, mm-hmm. talent will actually circle back. And it's not about possessing your high potentials. It's about engaging them when we're with you and making sure that they had, it was the time of their life. And that doesn't mean it's all fun. It can be hard fun. It can be grit and it can be grind. In fact, some of the best things are on the other side of hard work. You know, this is not baristas on every boardroom. You know, it's not that sort of stuff. You can bootstrap this, but it's actually, it's the, in fact, what you you can't buy this because it's the, it's the essential quality of who you're being as a leader. Mm Spot on. Yeah, man, let's talk some of the uh, books you've written. So um, <laughs> which of the ones you've written was your favorite book to write? The latest book I've written is a very niche little book. It's a pink book and it's called Think. Mm-hmm. And it's the book I should have written 15 years ago, but I couldn't. Uh, there was something getting in my way and I know what it is. And I wrote that book in essentially six days, but it was you know, 15 years of, of thinking to write a book in six days. And um, so it was one of the most pleasurable books to write. Um, Can you share with us what was standing in your way? It was this constellation of, of issues. But uh, essentially what it was, I was writing for all the wrong reasons. And when I wrote that book, I'd already made the decision that, I, that none of my, like my books were digitally free. And so the minute I'd made the decision to open source, because it's essentially the pink book is our most precious piece of the intellectual property that drives the thought leaders community. It is, you know, if, if I were to have admiration of clever people and I have a business partner, Peter, a very clever man. And what Peter will do is he says, you know, the best thing you've ever done in your life that you may never top again was the pink sheet process of how to think. So the decision to make that free, and to open source that to the world and then build out a video series that explained it so that people would never pay us for that intellectual property, but they might pay us to help them implement strategies in that domain. That freed me up, I think. So there's a bunch of other things, but that freed me up. And what I did is I said, well, fine, I'm going to write a book the way I want to. So every chapter has a model. And the rules are you don't put models in books. Well, stuff your publishers. We published it ourselves and made it free. So there is a model in every damn chapter. Yeah. And that's and and I'm was so happy to write the way I wanted rather than fitting someone else's mold. And I think that's one of those truisms for pretty much everything, isn't it? It's like when you're free to be yourself and fully self-express, some of your best work comes out. When you put limits and restrictions around you. Um, I mean, I love a good constraint. I love it. I love a good boundary and you know a deadline. I love all those sort of things. But but some of the bigger limitations, the cognitive ones that we put on ourselves, the energetic ones we put on ourselves about how much work you can do in a day or how many hours you have to sit at a desk. You know, I love some of the stuff you and Mike once shared with me around just some of the strategies to help entrepreneurs get out of the the prison that companies become. Um, and and how to get liberated from that space. And I think it's essentially when you can shift paradigms, mm-hmm. particularly the personal paradigms in your head, that's when everything begins to change. You know, for me, strong at 50, the strongest I've ever been at 50, as opposed to the decline into in the middle age, I go, yeah, right, it's a paradigm shift, mm-hmm. that I don't have to sell books anymore. Well, how great's that? Because I'm not in the $20 business. Everyone, instead of trying to withhold content on some side of a payment gate, I get to go to you and everybody at Breakthrough. I go, hey, take everything I've got. If it helps you, rock on. 
And if I'm in town and you want to come to something, then so be it. And I, and I love that that way of being. And I think, I, bottom line is, I think that's the truth of all business, isn't it now? Is that every client wants to have a sample of what you do in some way. And, and the idea is not, I don't think it's to with my philosophy is don't withhold those samples, but actually figure out a way to price the thing that's truly valuable. And for me, inspiration's great. Um, ideas are fantastic, but implementation's where it's at. So if you can if you can take an inspiration and do something with it, that's that's worth paying for. And uh, talking about freeing yourself to write the think book, it reminded me I, I attended this really great uh, speakership course a couple of times actually. <laughs> and the um, the smart guy at the front of the room that was leading the course said, "You've got to get past the disease to please." Yeah. And uh, for those of you who don't know, I am talking about the speakership course that uh, Matt Church. <laughs> Self runs, um, which I'm going to talk a bit about at the end of this because it's a, that was smooth. I, it was smooth, brother. I don't think anyone noticed that. That was smooth. It's, that's, it's that's so, like when it was so good that I went. Uh, I went twice, and you know that's one of your phrases, Matt, that plays in my head all the time. Is that disease to please? And I think the same thing whether you're um, coaching someone one on one, whether you're dealing with one of your own team members, whether you're um, writing a book, whether you're running a program. You know, if you can get past yourself and actually think about what the uh, help is to the people on the on the other side, it's a really good place to be. I was um, talking uh, to a psychologist the other day. I said, so how do you, you know, what does customer service look like in, in psychology? Because the customer's always right, except when they're not. And the whole point of going to a psychologist is the customer isn't. I said, how do you, how do you reconcile that? And she said to me, she said, Look, the key is to be a good psychologist is you have to want the best for the part of the person that wants the best for them. And I went, I had to think about that for a little bit because it was like double negatives. But essentially, she said there are parts within every person that you can speak to and you don't have to be speaking to the part of the person that's presenting itself to you right now. That might be the scared, cranky, uptight, irritable. And that it, it led me to... Um, there's this phrase I've been mulling around in my head that I quite like, and that is that you lead best when the best version of you talks to the best version of us. And the etymology of that idea was that conversation with a psychologist, which is, so I don't have the disease to please the part that is in front of me. And ironically, as a public speaker, when you get over that need, you become almost like that comedian that's not, I'm not trying to get you on side, I'm trying to make you laugh. And if that means to put you off, then I will. Now, that's not to say that that's the strategy for a person trying to launch a business into a market or raise funding or, or pitch venture, but, but there is this certain coolness. And I think, I think what we do as humans is we know when someone wants something too much and, you know, when they reek of desperation. And this is the difference between selling from conviction, which is I have something, it's really good and it's perfect for you. If you want it, this is what it costs, right? Now, that's conviction selling versus tell me all about you. What are your problems? Oh, what, how coincidental. I have a solution for that. And I want to have a shower because I feel like I just bought a used car. So I think as the, as the buyer gets more sophisticated and the internet guaranteed that, right? We're all one Google click away from any piece of information. I think the ability to stand in your power and not to be arrogant because I think humility comes with this. So I'm harping on about turning 50. Sorry, dude. But I actually wanted 50 people at my 50th and I did a list and half of them are from New Zealand. So I said getting 25 people to fly over to Sydney makes no sense. So I needed to do two parties. And if you said, well, why? And I go, well, <laughs> and I can talk to any gender, but what I think is that there is a grace 
in the Kiwi male particularly that I enjoy. And it's almost like they were well brought up. They get to this point where they go, happy to hang shit on you, happy to talk about stuff to a point, but there's a point where it stops. And that point is this dignified moment. And somehow that's relevant to whatever I was talking about, but I've forgotten. Connect me back. What were we talking about? I have no idea. All right, cool. <laughs> but I, I got to say I like Kiwis, which I guess yeah, was no, part was good. But I figure it was deeper than that. Was, there was something more, more profound than that that we were going with. But anyway. It was good no matter where it ended up in if you're saying Kiwis are good. So we, we'll take that. <laughs> we're all good. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about a time when you feel like you've had your back to the wall and you've had to overcome challenge. Oh, shit. Um, I've had a few. I remember early in business, um, I couldn't afford uh, a, a wedding ring. And um, I was so in hock. Now, Lexi and I have been married 22 years together, 30, right? So I had to sell my car to buy a wedding ring, well, an engagement ring. And the beautiful thing is when we turned 50, I had a bit more money and uh, was able to get better wedding rings, which was awesome. But but that, that was one time when I was economically, I had my back to the wall. And one of my mentors she just reached into a pocket and just put 50 grand in my bank account one Christmas. And I just went <laughs> and it took me six years to pay that back because mm-hmm. I was struggling. And um, to this day, I don't know if I've been as good a mentor to some of the people in my life as she was to me, but um, I'll never forget that moment of just absolute unconditional faith. And it reminds me that the quality that we can give to each other in community and in network and in friendship is the quality of encouragement and belief, isn't it? Um, It's that quality that says, you know, I believe in you even when you don't. I I love that prayer that people talk about, like the foot, it's a poem about footprints in the sand and I can't, you know, I don't identify with any religion, but I'm highly spiritual. And it's basically, there was two sets of footprints, which is like God and you walking along the stand. And then there's one set of footprints and, you know, the person turns around and goes, oh, why'd you leave me? And God turns around, what do you mean leave you? I was carrying you. (laughs) And so uh, backs to the wall, man. Um, I've had my back to the wall personally. There's things I've done that don't match my internal vision of myself. And so I find that almost untenable. But, you know, you, you do something that's outside, say, your perceived value set and you start to explore who am I as a person, who am I as a man. About two months ago, I had what I call nutcracker day. Um, I was just kicked in the nuts, like nine different ways. And essentially what happened is every way that I saw my identity as good just got hammered on one day. So I thought I was an awesome husband. Yeah, not so much. I thought I was an awesome dad. Yeah, not so much. I thought I was an extraordinary speaker. And I had this person in Bali give me feedback about how much I sucked. Um, <laughs> and and there was like just like no joke. By the time the fifth one had happened that day, because this all happened on one day, I was just giggling. I was just stripped so bad because every version of my internal identity that said I was good mm. was just getting hammered. And, um, and I've got to say, it's possibly one of the best things that's ever happened to me because on the other side of that, I go, well, yeah, it, it answers that Zen question of who are you? You know, who am I? And it goes, well, you're nothing. Now what are you going to do? Mm. And so I meditated. I continued my practices. I doubled down on things. Uh, I, I quit, you know, all sorts of things. And it's just been this process of, of shedding that stuff. So I've now come to realize um, there's this Persian poet called Rumi and uh, he says 
the wombs are where God lets the light in. And um, that's this idea of don't worry about the cracks. Don't worry about the, the things that are going wrong. And in fact, the Buddhists, you know, say that it's through the suffering that you actually learn to get to inner peace because essentially you've got to disassociate your attachment where A plus B equals C because it doesn't and A plus B are irrelevant. But the weird thing is how do you be equanimous and set goals that drive a business? And I reckon that's, that's the, that's the challenge for how you be a mindful leader. That's the challenge for how do you bring conscious leadership or consciousness to leadership in the 21st century. And I, I love that debate. I love that conversation. I love learning. So I just sit at the feet of masters and I could rattle off 12 different inspirations that have all helped me through things like Nutcracker Day. So we have plenty of business leaders that listen into this uh, podcast, Matt. And they go, mm. oh, I feel you. I, I totally understand what you're talking about. I just don't know how to get started on that in a, in a work context and leading my team and helping build culture yeah. in my organization. What's, yeah. what's some uh, small steps of progress people could look to take? Well, first of all, be the best version of yourself because even if you think you're covering it up, you're not. So you have to be working on you 24-7. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's praying. I don't care if it's meditating. I don't care if it's exercising, doing triathlons, eating well, trying to be a better parent. It, it makes no difference because there's no, there's no walls between you at work and you at home. So you just need to be the best version of you possible. Now, that's a lifetime project. Good luck, giddy up. And it's not the thing you were looking for. It's not an easy little thing to do. Look, I think if I can jump in, Matt, I think the yeah. insight that that's a, a 24-7 forever is the reality. So often we do the oh look I'm going to be I'm going to be really good at being a husband this month that's my focus and I've done that now I'm going to be really good at exercise this month kind of kind of done that I'm going to be really conscious around my diet for a month and then it is about building those habits and the constant uh, things that we do around around that you know it is daunting to know that the work is never done but that's the that's the reality right is you do have to be the best version of yourself uh, not only for yourself but for those around you as well and it is a constant piece of work and that's okay you're the lightning rod in your business right so every disruption every change every energetic thing is going to come through you as a lightning rod so don't be rusting on top of the roof like let's get it out of marine grade stainless steel let's get it bolted down let's put some some rubber insulation between you and the roof so that things vibrate it doesn't affect everyone else let's get a ray set up on top of it so you amplify the electricity and every time there's a disruption it actually you turn it into power you know this is okay so what can you do i think i think that uh, as a leader, you want to start a learning culture. So you want to make sure that you're not only leading, um, you're, that you're actually taking and curating the knowledge and wisdom you're picking up and redistributing it through your people. I love the idea, the premise of a leaderful organization because I, I would define whether you're a leader or a manager based on how many leaders there are in your business. So if you're the only leader, you're a manager. And if you're growing other leaders, then you're truly a leader. And I think that every entrepreneur and every business owner needs to develop the disposition of the chairperson, where the chairperson mentors the senior leadership. And you can be an executive chair, that's fine. You can be operational and in it. But you almost want to develop that disposition because I think what that does is it frees you up from the org chart, and that's got to be a goal and gets you into mentoring the leaders and developing the capability of leaders. So that, that's practical. I think if you are still in the operational managerial org chart stuff, I think whenever you are disappointed in someone, I do an if this, then that. 
And I reckon developing if this, then that is probably one of the quickest ways to develop new positive behaviors, right? So let's say, for example, you want to start exercising more. Let's, and let's say every day uh, you drop, and Professor Brian Fogg from the Stanford Behavior Influence Clinic has a thing called Time Habits. And it's basically if this, then that. So if I drop a kid at the bus stop, then go to the gym, right? And you go, kid to dress, bus stop, go to gym. That's what happens. And then every time you do a bus stop, because that's part of your day that you, you don't even need a habit to do. It's just what you do. Mm-hmm. But if you associate going to the gym with that and you set up what's called um, James Clear in his book, Atomic Habits, calls it habit stacking, which is basically the same thing that Professor Fogg's identified, which is just associate good behaviours or an ideal behaviour. So the if this, then that as a leader is when you're disappointed, respond with kindness, right? That's a powerful habit. It's a powerful habit that will have a, a huge impact on culture. And it's counterintuitive because we're in a culture of feedback and a culture of KPIs and a culture of 360 degrees and constructive criticism. I am of the opinion that there's plenty of criticism going around and good people are the hardest critics on themselves. That in fact, your superpower could be encouragement and kindness, not feedback. Now, interestingly, anthropologists say that parenting and leadership are the same thing. Now, don't worry if you don't have kids. That's cool. There's two types of people in the world, those with kids and those who go on good holidays. But if you're, even without a kid, they're saying anthropologists believe that leadership and parenting are almost the same thing. There's some research that's out of North America looking at uh, high-performing kids who get scholarships at US universities. So they're physically talented and academically really good and 95% get placement in NFL and NBA and NBL and all those things. Mm-hmm. So the other 95% were just getting cheap uni or free uni. And they asked them what was the toughest thing about being such a high performer? And they've done this uh, over multiple thousands of them and over many, many years. And it's basically the drive home on Saturday when your team lost and it's the way the parent talks to you in the car. And they're saying that Nana nails it because when you lose with dad or with mum, depending on how competitive they are, the drive home is, well, you know why you lost? You lost because the coach had the wrong players on in the final quarter. Now, what have I told you about sitting on the bench, Johnny? Get up, be a demand. And I can hear my father and me parenting and and the echoes of Ghost Past of of how all of us have been well-meaning trying to improve the performance of our kid. When in fact, they've identified that a high-performing kid doesn't need that. And in fact, it doesn't help. Uh, that what they need is they need what Nana does. So you're driving home on Saturday and Nana's the one that took you to sport instead. Nana looks across and goes, oh, you're lost. That's a shame. Shall we go out for lunch? Ice cream? Yeah. And you go, yeah, Nana. And the failure becomes normalised. Now, we know whether it's Eric Rees and the Lean Startup methodology or just this basic idea of continuous reinvention that's in the breakthrough curriculum, we know that you're going to fail. And everyone says you've got to be, you've got to be okay with failure. And then they say things like you've got to fail smart. And it kind of shits you because it's counterintuitive to the way we were brought up. But in fact, normalising failure as learning could be, and the way a leader does it, is next time you're disappointed, don't give them feedback, give them kindness. Now, I can be prescriptive around that, but I can't define what kindness is for you. And if you want me to go way out on a cloud and float around with pixies, here's what I'll say. The question you should ask yourself in any given moment as a leader is what would love do? What would love do right now? Now, I don't know how you define love, whether you've got anything in your life or you even understand it. And what's love got to do with it? Well, everything apparently tina so it's everything to do with the engagement of humanity and the inspiration of humanity now you can define love at eight levels you can 
read uh, Chapman's book on the five love languages and, mm-hmm. and realise that one of your kids' love language is quality time, or another one's is acts of affection, the other one's is gifts of receiving, and just even, even just starting to get into the idea of love and kindness as a leadership capability and not as a parenting disposition, you actually start to get how to influence and build culture where these millennials and talenteds leave and come back, leave and come back, bringing the DNA of excellence back into your business again and again and putting you on this massive growth cycle. And when you build a organisational culture centred around love, as a, as a word, um, how much value gets created in the organisation, and you know, I, I mean actual PL value, but yeah. also the the value that's created as a, a community of people striving for for good outcomes. Phenomenal. What does love look like, and and what would love do? I actually think we're going to get a lot of nuances. We're going to get it in all kinds of levels. And and for me, when someone says be an authentic leader, I go, I don't know what to do with that. That's a stupid thing to tell me. I don't know what to do with it. But if you said, in every moment, ask yourself what would love do and start to get good at the nuances of love, then I think what you'd start to do is you'd notice your leadership effectiveness would go through the roof. Now, that's kind of two ideas, right? Be the best version of yourself and, and ask yourself what would love do. And when you're disappointed, respond with kindness. That's the first thing love does. Quality, Matt. Love it. Um, let's talk a, bit, a little bit about speakership. It's uh, certainly one of the things that you're well known for and most famous for. As I mentioned earlier, I've been, had the pleasure of joining you on a couple of your speakership programs. Not only an attempt, but a real outcome to improve uh, what I do from the front of the room. Tell us, where did your journey into um, speaking again? My journey is almost irrelevant, but the answer to it is uh, I was a 17-year-old black belt who wanted to teach kids martial arts. Mm-hmm. And I had to go to a fitness course. These teachers were amazing. And I saw the quality of a teacher to inspire change because who I was going into that course and who I was coming out of it in six days, I've got to say, I feel like I was a completely different person. Now, did they do that to me? No. The teacher appears when the student's ready, right? So you've got to have this appetite to want to grow. But I looked at what they did for others and I said to myself, well, if I could do that for the rest of my life, then I'm good. Because it's what drew me to wanting to be a martial arts instructor. My journey into speakership was this idea that there is this leveraged way to influence that is very respectful. I don't think you do things to an audience. And I think a lot of people think you do. You don't. What you do is you, you pick a state and you work on yourself. And then you present that state to the room with the message around it. And that essentially it's like a tuning fork. The room resonates up to the note you're setting or not. And for me, James Hume, who was the presidential speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, he said that speakership is leadership and that every time you speak in public, you're auditioning for a leadership position. I love the fact that you should just speak. You should speak in public. It's the ultimate fast-track personal development course and uh, because you just can't bullshit an audience. And I think the thought that you can is what makes people disingenuous on stage. But So I love it from a talent engagement point of view. One of the smartest things you can do is put yourself in front of your business and go, this is what we stand for here. And if that's something you want, we'd love to do business together. And for me, it's really the ultimate speech that converts clients. It's a speech in three parts. It goes, here is who we are. That's 10 minutes. Here is what we do. That's 10 minutes. And then who we serve. You know, here's what we do and who we serve. And then you spend 10 minutes going, and if that's you, then um, let's dance. And so you actually structure your presentation in three parts, as opposed to putting up PowerPoint slides 
and talking to them, uh, insulting the audience and putting them to sleep. You know, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. This is who we work with and what we do. And if that's you, let's dance. And you do 10 minute, 10 minute, 10 minute conversion done. Now, if they don't want to buy off you, perfect. You don't want them as customers. Don't speak for everyone in the room. It goes back to your disease to please thing. Mm -hmm. Speak to the people in the room who understand the, the language you're speaking. That, that makes sense. A lot. Would you agree that speakers are made, not born? I believe in the inherent value and dignity of every soul. And subsequently, I think we can learn anything from anyone. If we can shut up, get rid of our bias, you know, sit and listen, right? So it's ironic to be talking about a speaking course, but this idea of encounter where I get to encounter the quality of who you are in conversation. I mean, you're in service so much in this. Uh, I know you and there's so much you could be adding to this conversation, but you're allowing it to flow one way from me, which is very generous of you, Mr. Castle. But, but in that deep encounter with another, I think you can have profound moments, um, profound moments in life. There's a Chilean uh, noble laureate poet who talks about it's great to have the company of brothers um, but it's actually affirming to have the company of strangers um, so I don't know if you've ever gone traveling by yourself and just talked to a whole bunch of strangers and never see them again but it was this extraordinary intimacy with a, a with a, a waiter or a taxi driver for just five minutes and and based on that I think everybody has a story to tell what I think is that nearly for some reason, if you say, well, what stops everybody sharing their stories? I go, well, maybe they don't have an imperative to, but I think business becomes the imperative to build your origin story, your customer story, your differentiation story. If you just built those three stories and you shared them in that 10 minute, 10 minute, 10 minute structure, um, you know, you'd be an awesome speaker because we get to, to see who you are. You don't need to make it more complex than that. And so, yeah, every, everybody has something to say. So speakers are both born and can be made. And the made part is you've just got to put down the stories you have around what speaking looks like. Pretty much everybody I've ever helped speak who doesn't do a lot of it, the first time they speak, they develop this speaker voice. And the speaker voice is they talk, I don't know where it is, it's like high school taught them, uh, you know, they're so cool, like sitting down with a bottle of wine or a coffee, just having a chat. You're like, oh, you're awesome. You're interesting. This is amazing. And then you put them behind a lectern with PowerPoint. And you go, who are you? Yeah. You're not who I was just talking to. And so this idea of the, the hardest part of the work of being a good speaker, whether it's to drive business or to, to make a living out of it like I do, the hardest thing to do is to amplify who you are authentically because it's counterintuitive. It's you've actually got to take those parts of you, blow them up and then kind of put it together in a, in a coherent way. It really comes down to this. It comes down to when you get up in front of a room full of people, you need to be vibrating higher than when you're sitting at home behind a desk planning a presentation and the gap between planning it on PowerPoint behind a computer and delivering it to 200 people in a room is what makes you suck as a speaker. Mm -hmm. So what I, you know, in, in any work I try to do, is trying to get you to understand how to move up that gap, how to move from behind the computer with a PowerPoint slide to in front of 200 people and be awesome. But it works from the boardroom to the ballroom, from, from the cafe to the conference room. And it's just about knowing how to meet the situation with the right sort of, vibration level and i know that sounds weird but it's what's what level is your message vibrating at 
what 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 message are you vibrating at? Like, are you sitting there going, I'm not good enough. Oh my God, I'm a terrible speaker. Oh, they're going to see me sweating. Oh shit, I'm five kilo overweight. Because all of that, that when I say you're vibrating low, that's you vibrating and live a lie. Yeah. And um, you and I know the journey is a journey of pronouns, right? It's to move from I to you to we. And when you can get into a we state, I think leadership is more effective. Um, and clearly, speakership, which is leadership in the action of speaking in public, becomes more effective. In fact, I can just get any one of your staff to tick every time you use a pronoun in three columns. Just put I in one column, you in another column, and we in another column. Next time you speak, get one of your staff to put a tick every time you say I, you, we. And if your we ratio far outweighs your you and I ratio. If it looks like, you know, a, a triangle on its side or whatever that would be, or a tip awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it, well done, son. Thank you. That, that education was not wasted. If you, if you are more to the we space, then what you'll find is your influence is through the roof. And when people go, oh, that was amazing. That was, you're an engaging, dynamic speaker. It's because you were talking in the we and us space. If they say, oh, that was really helpful, that was really instructive, you're in the you space. space. Now, if you've done something amazing, like you've climbed a mountain with a broken leg and a toothpick and one Mars bar, mm -hmm. then, then tell us your I story. But if you haven't done that, oh, for God's sake, stop. And in fact, everyone says, no, we just want to hear your story. They're lying. Yes. They don't want to hear your story. They want to hear how your story affirms the possibility for them. Um, and and you know, there's some of the things. So yeah, speak of the maid and they're born. Yes. Who has been a speaker that you admire, whether it be um, past or present? I have a favourite Kiwi speaker and she is possibly one of my favourite speakers at the moment. Her name is Lisa O'Neill. And if anybody's running a conference in New Zealand or the world and they haven't got her speaking, they should. She's amazing. Basically because she's a master of state and her fundamental presentation is around encouragement. And, and what I love about it is no one goes, oh, that's good, a female speaker. They just go, she's a great speaker. Who cares? Who, get, who cares? It's irrelevant. And shouldn't we be at that point? Shouldn't we? Of course. Um, but anyway, so fantastic speaker. I am in love with the speakers whom are kind of beyond what I can do at the moment. So like an Eckhart Tolle. Now, not everybody wants to listen to Eckhart because he sits in a chair and um, has a funny accent and is an odd little man. Um, but there is something which the quality that people talk about is called entrainment, which is it almost doesn't matter what he's saying, who he's being on stage while he's saying it actually is the lesson. And so I've spent so many years observing whether someone moved left or right, whether they, whether their words were poetic and an in linguistic palette, um, whether their ideas were full spectrum, where they went from the concrete to the abstract and the analytical to the creative, uh, whether their story had a precise beginning, middle and end and a complication that got resolved. And all of this is really important. It really, really is. But where I'm at now is I'm now looking for something else, which is, uh, and I think that all of our development as speakers or as leaders or as humans should be iterative and inclusive. Like a, I'm a big fan of evolution. What you learned in year seven, if it was good, you're still using it today, no matter how old you are. Mm -hmm. What you learned when you were 13, you've carried forward. So I love this idea of evolution. 
And so I still believe in all of those stage mechanics, teach them and, and think they're important. And I'm really excited by this idea of who you're being on stage. And I think, I think we've all seen someone who breaks the rules of public speaking. We've all seen them, but it's deeply compelling. Yes. And I'm really interested in what that is. That's where I'm currently exploring this person who doesn't seem to do it by the rules. Mm-hmm. And, and when I'm, and I'm at the edge of understanding this, but what I think is happening is I think that the state who, what state they're in matters more than the script they're delivering. And I go, how liberating does that sound? Uh, so I'm somewhere between holding on to the person who needs just to get their slides together and, and reaching up to these, these people that are doing this and trying to bridge the conduit between that. And, and I think that's the goal of a good teacher, isn't it? To be the bridge between all levels of understanding and awareness. Absolutely. When you feel you have further clarification on what it is that allows people that don't seem to be following the structure and the script and the, the best known practices, and you yeah. still can compel an audience when you unlock that and unpack it, when you figure it out, let us know. That might be the secret. That's like, that's going to be like the Scientology thing. That'll be the secret seventh ring where we all find out something else. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. I love it. Let's do that. Let's do it in Queenstown. Let's do it only with a select group of people in Queenstown, which is my, earlier, my retirement goal. So any, t- any chance I get to get there, the better. So I am, I am there. Okay, um, Matt, you have some speakership programs coming up on both sides of the Tasman. As someone that has attended these programs twice and uh, business partner Mike's attended, we've taken our staff along to them. Shout out to our audience is going, if you do want to improve your um, art of speaking or just need to figure out any of those elements from you know boardroom to ballroom, as you, you said, cafe to conference room, wherever it is, uh, look, I couldn't signal higher how valuable the course is that you run because you do take what appears to be an art. Um, when you see someone on stage, you're like, wow, they were so good. You mm-hmm. had such a brilliant ability to unpack. Here's what happened. These are some things you can look at. This is how mm-hmm. you start with a pink sheet. This is how you unpack your ideas. Um, this is how you engage an audience right from the start. This is how you have some things that allow you to get past yourself and being being on stage. So we're going to put some links in the uh, show notes about a, a deal that we can offer to people to come and join you, Matt. So I think we've got a Melbourne and an Auckland event coming up this yeah, year. Yeah, end of the year. Yeah. So we'll put some we'll put some details around around those in a, a deal for people to come and figure out. But look, as far as personal endorsement goes, absolutely. The uh, I'm trying to go. Is that the best training I've done? It must be close to it. It's really <laughs> look at, look at well. The, the fact that you run some brother that makes it awesome. I, look, and I think the thing is, we talk about public speaking, but we're also talking about leadership, and we're talking about you being the best version of you. So you get access at whatever one of those three levels you like. And there are people in the room who never want to speak, but have heard that this is a great way to focus on personal development. We've got people who want to be better leaders but are sick of doing leadership courses where they learn about vision. So they're like, talk about leadership in action. And then there are people who deliberately just want to be better at speaking in public. And I try to hit all three of those needs. But, um, brother, your endorsement is amazing. Give my love to Mike and everybody else. Um, uh, I know we've had your family through as well. Um, yes. And so it's uh, it's a, a privilege to do this. And uh, yeah, I hope that the, by doing it in Auckland, you know, making it a nice little express two-day one, that I get the chance to work with some Kiwi brothers and sisters. So thanks, man. Super. Hey, look, final question for you. Yeah. Um, not a lot matters in life, mm. but what matters matters a lot. Hmm. What matters to you? The truth. The truth. I think 
the cliche that the truth will set you free is a cliche for a reason. I think it's one of those prevailing ideas. And I think that there are relative truths. And we've all, if you've lived on this planet for more than a couple of years, you get a relative truth, right? Which is something you thought was true in the past no longer is. And then there's absolute truths. And I think there are very few absolute truths, which is at the heart of this question you're even asking, where you're going, what is the absolute truth? And I go, all I can say is truth is, and I don't mean to be all out on a cloud, but what it means to me is I'm very, very careful of dogma. I'm very, very careful of institutional thinking. And I'm very, very careful of ideology because I have been the proponent and the receiver of all of those things, and they were relatively true. So they were relatively true at a time in a context. And I think as we get ready for the future, we've got to be able to shift from those uh, relative truths, which we call paradigms and beliefs, and we've actually got to get to the absolute truths, which are the things that you viscerally feel. Um, and there's not that many of them. So it's a good question. It's a great question. Good question, and it was a suitably met answer. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I'm going to take it as a good thing. I think it um, it means that your dedication and pursuit to understanding through the course of your life has definitely allowed you to assess things at a higher plane than most of us do. <laughs> and and I, I'm not blowing smoke here, man. It's just it's it's an observation, and it's part of why I uh, thoroughly enjoy spending time with you when I get the opportunity. And, okay. I just want to say thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for being open and uh, vulnerable with us today, sharing with our audience. It's deeply appreciated. Uh, honor and a pleasure. Thanks.